Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of OP Radio. My name is Mac. I'm a content strategist at OP Labs. We have a really exciting episode for you today, right on the tail end of some exciting news that came yesterday. I am joined with a couple colleagues, the fathers of Ethers Phoenix, the sultans of scaling, the big brains behind the super chain, Mr. Carl Flourish and Mr. Ben Jones. Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? Let's go. Good morning. What's going on, Mac? That might be the most scandalous intro song we've ever done, but I guess on such momentous occasion that we're going to roll with it. <laughs> yeah, I figure, you know, it'll get cut out later in the, the final version. So I think we can get away with it just for the waiting room music. Oh, yeah. So it's like if you're listening in post, you know, you, you're just going to be wondering right now what we were playing that you can't hear on the Spotify. So tune in live next time, baby. Exactly. That's right. That's a good reason to tune in live. Okay, so I am super excited. Besides that intro, maybe we should let people know who you guys are in case they don't already. You're both co-founders of Optimism. Is there anything else you'd like to add to your titles here or to the people on OP Radio? Oh, man, no. I mean, the only thing I got to just say is that it's so much more than just me and Carl. There's a freaking team that has been heroically, heroically working for you know, over a year now on this incredible upgrade. So no, I'm not inflating my title, man. I'm just thankful to be part of the team because we passed a huge freaking milestone today. Yes. <laughs> awesome. Okay. Let's dig right into it. Okay. So let's, let's start very, very broadly. Okay. OP mainnet underwent an upgrade yesterday called bedrock. And I would love if Carl, if you could tell us what bedrock is and what it means. All right, I will expand beyond ad libs. So, Bedrock is, of course, well, it's really two things. You can kind of think of it as two things. One, it is the upgrade, the momentous, incredible upgrade to Optimism Mainnet that happened yesterday. It is an upgrade which, you know, cut fees by 40% or L1 fees by 40%. It cut the deposit time down to around a minute. It increased security with two-step withdrawals, like all of these really important features just for the user experience of OP mainnet. But it's more. It's also the next, the most foundational release, the foundational release of the OP stack. So this is essentially, it is built on this modular architecture, which separates consensus, the consensus layer from the execution layer that the ETH2 you know, teams pioneered. We took that we repurposed it for L2, wrote up a minimal diff, as in we just changed a few lines of code in Geth, less than a thousand of critical lines, and boom, now we have a really, really solid roll-up software stack that is incredibly minimal. And we'll go into more about why the OP stack is, is great later, but it's a huge day for OP mainnet, and it's a huge day for just the open source soft rollups, L2 software in general. Yeah, I want to circle back, Carl, on two points you made. One is that Bedrock is aptly named, right? That the name is no coincidence. It's the foundational release. So Bedrock being that lower substrata of the Earth's crust, somewhere around the mantle there and the nickel. I forget my geology lesson. But the point is that Bedrock is aptly named because this is the foundation of the release for years to come. And then the other point that you made is this minimal diff. And I wonder if you could speak to that a little bit more about why that's 
a good thing and why that's important, why, why we're so excited about that. Nice. Yes, definitely. Definitely. So I think it's really important to contextualize this in terms of like the way that layer two software has been built and kind of our learnings from doing it so much in the various other releases. And then we've eventually through building out layer two software, we had we learned to appreciate the power of standardization and the power of not just writing code that provides features, but writing protocols that are simple enough to get adopted by an ecosystem and actually push forward standards in a slow, measured, and sustainable way. So the minimal diff is this philosophy around Okay, the Ethereum protocol, these Geth clients, these, you know, various Ethereum clients, they have been battle tested and they the code is known by everyone. Part of decentralization is that people, a lot of people understand the Geth code base. So if the original Geth creators were to go away, there would be other people who are able to build out the Ethereum protocol. So what that means is it's incredibly important to bring all of that prior knowledge along for the ride as we venture into layer two, as we venture into Ethereum scalability. So minimal diff is literally just the minimal changes required to Geth or other you know, code bases, other protocols that are core to Ethereum's functioning, that what are the minimal changes that enable us to build for layer two, build the, you know, modify the Ethereum protocol so that it works in layer two, because it wasn't originally designed for that. So that is how we got to the point where if you go on op-geth.optimism.io, you can look up the entire diff and you can see, oh, wow, like in terms of core changes to the business logic of geth, there are less than 1,000 lines of code. And that is a very, considering what we are trying to achieve with, you know, putting geth into layer two, that is a very, very small dip. Now, the reason why this is so, so critically important is because, again, it allows us to push the industry or the ecosystem forward by bringing everyone along for the ride. You only need to learn a little bit. You only need to make a few changes to the existing protocols to support a layer two protocol. And so this is actually how we got to the point where we already have an alternative client implementation. We have this, we built, and by we, I really just mean OP Labs, actually a bunch of other contributors as well, but the standard kind of, you know, main client for now, by the way, there will not be a main client forever, but the one that you hear about most is a combination of the OP node and OP geth. But there was a alternative stack, which is Magi and OP Aragon that were created in the community because we were able to create this very small diff, this minimal diff, and therefore it was not so hard for the community to build out this alternative client implementation. Doing that on top of a code base of 10,000 lines of code with all these different weird changes that you only, you know, that you have to know if by learning from an expert, like that kind of stuff does not scale. We're building out a decentralized protocol. And for that to scale, we need to make sure that our protocols are understandable and bring the community along. So it is actually incredibly important. 
And I actually, I think that... Yo, Carl, let me take a minute to double-click on that. Let me take a minute to double-click on that because it is absolutely mind-blowing with the perspective of us having, you know, run these scaling solutions for years now. Like, the transformation of scaling as an industry is simply one, from our perspective, of decreasing complexity over and over and over again. And that is really hard to do because literally the first response to the Bitcoin white paper, literally, if you go to the original mailing list where the Bitcoin white paper was shipped, the very first thing it said, very first comment was, these blockchain things are cool, but I don't think it scales to massive amounts of users. And for the decade plus that has preceded that, the name of the game has been trying to figure out how to do that. And there's a reason that Bitcoin couldn't scale is because it's hard to do and it requires a lot. And, you know, from the beginning, we've been trying to pioneer solutions that work. And what we found time and time again is that it can't just work for us. That is not enough. It has to work for the community. So it is absolutely just mind-blowing to me that we just completed an upgrade. And now suddenly, in a, over the course of just months, code has been written that allows you to run a complete OP mainnet client with no code that was written by OP Labs, the Optimism Foundation, at all. You can literally run two entirely distinct, barely, like pretty much no code overlap nodes that share no software whatsoever. They just share a protocol. And that, to us, is a testament of the minimalism of the protocol, and it's a testament to where we're headed. Yeah, that's the power of open source, right? Super exciting. And I just want to... Oh, go ahead, Ben. Sure, I mean, I'll hit it. I think this is part of the realization is like, it's the power of good open source, right? Because if you open source a monstrosity of a code base, as we did when we first launched, the reality is that the power of open source goes down, right? And so to Carl's point, this is about bringing a community along for the ride and pulling the momentum of Ethereum as an open source project into the layer two context. So it's like the power of open source. And it's so exciting to finally be able to utilize that power in its full form. Absolutely. And just to go back to what Carl was saying, if I were to just sort of rephrase it in my own words, it's this battle-tested code base that's been around, right? So, you know, we're, we're sort of standing on the shoulders of giants, as it were, there. And it's also this idea, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. So, you know, Geth works, so w- why change it? And, and so having this minimal diff, it also it minimizes that attack surface, right? This leads actually right into my next question and, and, and something that Carl said, which is, Carl, what in your estimation... Or for you personally, let's say, like, what is the what is the greatest thing that Bedrock unlocks, or what is your favorite part about this upgrade? Oh my gosh! Okay, my favorite part about this upgrade, I think that my favorite, okay, fundamentally, my favorite part of this upgrade is that it is a foundation for the community to build on, for us to build on, for us to, you know, all move forward and kind of, you know, push the standard forward. Like that, that is just so incredibly powerful that I'm, I'm, I, I'm very amped about it. But a specific thing that does get me excited is its implications for the super chain. So the super chain is the, as we, what, what we are building towards is this world where there isn't just, you know, OP mainnet, there is a whole bunch of OP chains which are all working together and built on the same standard, built on the same software and, you know, share security properties. So this is definitely the thing that in the long term, I'm just like incredibly amped about. And when I said share security properties, that is where the part of the bedrock code base, one specific part of the bedrock code base comes in. So 
The multi-client ecosystem is not just for the kind of social decentralization or increasing the number of contributors. It is also critical for the security of optimism. In order to make sure that Ethereum, this is something that we've really learned from the Ethereum community, which we are a part of. No, no surprise that we learned from it because we grew up in it. But in the way that Ethereum was launched was it created multiple implementations of the same code base, even from day one, which was a huge bet that Ethereum made. And they said, okay, let's, let's build out three different implementations so that, I think it was around three, different implementations so that if one of them were to fail, the network would not be entirely ruined. And this has persisted to the point where even now we've expanded the number of Ethereum implementations to a huge, huge degree with the, you know, a whole set of client teams, a whole set of execution layer teams. It's this kind of mentality is what has made sure that Ethereum ETH2, that the, mer the merge transition was seamless. And actually it, there were, there were some like issues a few, a few weeks ago, maybe a month ago, which with the Ethereum network, where the, having that client diversity was actually critical to keeping the network healthy and moving forward. So in order for us to ensure that we have a decentralized and secure protocol, we need to have this multi-client implementation because we're going to be using that multi-client implementation to implement a multi-proof structure, which is part of the kind of stage two or like final end game of roll-up decentralization as laid out by Vitalik in one of his research posts. So this is incredibly important getting to that point where we have the multi-client implementation, where we have a multi-proof, that is going to provide us the redundancy so that if one of our clients fails, the system is not down. And in order, and that is incredibly important for the super chain because the fault proof is what is securing communication throughout the super chain. So if we want to build out the super chain, this, the bedrock is that foundation. It is the first step. So I'm, I'm, yeah. Oh, I'm excited to even say. Yeah, Carl, you you use the you use the exact word that I was thinking of, which is redundancy, and this modularity enables this redundancy. Exactly, exactly. Like this is part of. I mean, it's really hard to make the mental shift between writing implementations and writing protocols. So when you're writing an implementation. You're building out the software, you're deploying your software, you're maintaining it. And, you know, it's like maybe more of like a SaaS company, for instance, where you, you have an instance and people are using your servers and you're managing users, et cetera. That, that paradigm is fundamentally different from the paradigm of writing in Ethereum. It is when we're building out protocols, we're actually not just writing a particular implementation, we're building out the rules of interaction so that the system's properties are always enforced. And so this is why like when you're writing a server, it might not be the worst thing in the world if you have extra lines of code. But when you're writing a protocol, extra protocol complexity becomes very dangerous because you need to make sure that the entire ecosystem that your protocol exists within and all of the different multi-client implementations, all of that, that they're working together. And in order for them to work together, it needs to be simple. Complexity is the bane of software development. So we just, 
it, it, I can't stress how like building out this foundation has been so, so important. You mentioned this concept, and I, I want to take this opportunity that we have here, having you here today to explain this concept. And it is this concept of a fault proof. If you're involved in the in the crypto industry, you may have seen this term passed around. I think it's kind of a complicated one. And so I, I would love to take this opportunity to have someone like yourself sort of explain it to us in the simplest terms possible. How about it? You, you willing to take a stab nice. for us? Definitely willing to take a stab. So what a fall proof is, is something that we have been learning about and kind of grappling with and, and describing in greater and greater simplicity for years. So we are now, the blockchain space, the Ethereum space is now at a point where I think the abstractions are in actually becoming clear. So first off, what the fault proof fundamentally is, is it is a communication layer between chains. So what do I mean by that? What I mean is the when you're running an OP mainnet node, you are running Ethereum. And then Ethereum, first you execute the Ethereum blockchain, and then you use that to derive the OP mainnet blockchain. What do, and so for things like deposits, you don't actually need a fault proof. Or even things like transactions on L2, you don't actually need a fault proof because the system is already, it's automatically just deriving that information directly from Ethereum. So it's pulling it directly from Ethereum and using that for the L2. But how does the L2 communicate back to L1? Because the L1 is not syncing Ethereum mainnet nodes are not running OP mainnet. It, OP mainnet nodes are running Ethereum nodes, but not the, not vice versa. So how does that work? Whereas the, the problem is not trusting the messages coming from Ethereum. It's trusting the messages coming from the layer exactly, two. Exactly. Exactly. So how do we do that? Well, we need a fault proof. So we need a system which allows, based on very reasonable crypto economic kind of assumptions, we need a system that allows for secure messages to go from the L2 back to the L1 so that, you know, for instance, tokens that are locked up that have been deposited from L1 are able to be unlocked and then reused on Ethereum L1. So that is the key primitive. And the interesting thing, the reason why I kind of describe it in this way as opposed to, you know, taking more time to like describe the specific thing that the Fallproof does, it's because that particular component is so critical for the superchain broadly. Because just as L2 needs to communicate with L1, so do L2s need to communicate with each other. So, in, in, in order for us to create a truly secure, decentralized, and permissionless superchain, we need a decentralized and permissionless communication layer between the OP chains. Thank you. That was a fantastic description and definition. Ben, I think we have you back. Do you have anything to add? And let's also see if you can speak now. <laughs> yes, sir. Can you hear me? Yep, oh, I got okay. you. Yeah, I mean, no, Carl nailed it super well. You know, I think the critical implicit thing to be stating there is that from an architectural perspective, if we want to scale blockchains and crypto to the masses, like truly to a global set of users, none of the solutions that we have at the table right now work. That's the hard, cold truth. We make significant improvements, right? We got up here and talked about how we reduce fees by 40% with this bedrock upgrade, and we'll keep making improvements like that. 
But at the end of the day, we need an architecture that supports more, right? And it makes sense for us to start with something that's very reasonable, the single roll-up, right? That reduces your fees by 10, 100x, whatever it is, right? And we keep iterating on that. But at the end of the day, where we're headed is something greater. And, you know, Carl alluded to this earlier with the super chain, the notion that we need not just one of these chains, but multiple of those chains. And it is critical for us to be able to accomplish that, that we have some form of homogeneity between those chains, right? Saying that we need a bunch more chains to scale crypto does not mean that we need to have users understand 100 different chains and understand 100 different bridges. And so what Carl is talking about here in terms of uniformity and redundancy is critical to bringing crypto to the masses. So I don't know. Yeah, I think Carl nailed the description right. I think it's just important to call out the implications of what we're doing when we're building this out. Because L2 to L2 communication becomes the future of the internet's infrastructure. Yeah, and I just want to say that we would definitely know if the technology was ready because we would be using it every single day. On a global scale, yeah. totally. Thank you, Ben. That, ben, that was so good because I love Carl gave us the, the technical explanation and, the, and then you brought us out, zoomed us back out into the macro and you know what the point of this is and how it, it, it will look in the future. So thank you. That was awesome. I do want to, if you'll indulge me, I do want to take this opportunity to maybe, you know, one or both of you could help me define one more term. And it's this term, this thing we talk about a lot, it's that's called the OP stack. And what I want to do is, is distinguish and make clear the difference between the bedrock upgrade and the OP stack. Is, any, is anybody willing to take a stab at that you for me? So thing, of course I can. Yeah. So what is the OP stack other than, you know, a cool catchy name that, you know, is applicable to pancake emojis? Okay. So a fundamental property for us to scale crypto to the masses, like I was just talking about, is that it can't happen alone. And no one project, no one person, no one entity is going to be able to accomplish such a lofty goal as bringing crypto to the next billion and 7 billion users, right? But the reality is that all of the people doing it need to be coordinating, right? It also isn't fair to say that one person is going to do it alone, but 100 people are going to do it in isolation and one will finally stick, right? That's just not the reality. And that's just not how the power of open source, you know, to our little catchphrase earlier goes, right? We have to scale together. So the OP stack is the code base which powers OP mainnet, but it is also the code base which should power the rest of the chains in this super chain structure, the structure that we were just describing. So ultimately, the OP stack is this modular source code that forms the basis for building scaling solutions. And I think it's important, you know, we actually haven't talked a lot, a lot about modularity in this space so far. We talked a lot about minimal diff, which is very related to modularity in that a well-architected code base has many small sets of little modules. But ultimately, what we need to do is unify the experimentation surface of these scaling solutions under a shared standard, right? So it's got to be a balance, in other words. It's not going to be 100 people going, you know, going at it alone. It's not going to be one person going at it alone. We've got to have some sort of balance. And the OP stack is there to be the standard and set that balance. So there have already been some incredible examples of people extending the OP stack into other contexts. We had things like OP Craft, which was done by the amazing folks at Lattice, and they built a really cool on-chain voxel game that basically extended the OP stack in a cool gaming environment. And it used some different properties than a roll-up to be able to accomplish that. And those are the kinds of trade-offs that we exactly need a huge community 
to be making. And I could go on and on with examples, right? We obviously have Coinbase launching their chain base, which is very, very exciting. There's a lot more things in the works. And every day we go to a new hackathon and there's people building incredible hack stack hacks, we call them, you know, improving the OP stack. So ultimately, the OP stack is the source code, right? It's the software for building standardized protocols, but doing so in a way where people can experiment and build on top and still not completely diverge from a common implementation, like Carl said, that has the redundancy and the multi-client ecosystem and stands on the shoulders of giants in the way that we were talking about earlier. Yeah, so that's a little bit about the OP stack. Carl, is there anything you would add there? I think not. I think that that was a really good one. Aww. Maybe I'll have a, I have a question. I have a follow-up question, which is it, bringing it back to, back to Bedrock. Bedrock then, correct me if I'm wrong, is the upgrade to this modular open source code base. Right. Yeah. So to Carl's point, that is the OP stack. Yeah. To Carl's point earlier, the, the way that we think about this is that the Bedrock is the first release of the OP stack that we feel ready to embark upon this journey with the community. Right. So we spoke earlier about how it was really important to get rollups out there and reduce these fees by ten to one hundred x, even if it wasn't going to be the end game. But we also learned a lot from that and learned how to write a good code base that generalizes not just to one chain but to many chains and uses not just one construction but forms the basis for many constructions, right? The way you do that is you split all the different aspects of the construction into little modules and you make it so that people can change some aspect of the code base without having to go into every single piece of the code base and update it based on those changes. So Bedrock is the first release of the OP stack. It is the release where it is now time to go and mass and scale. Nice. I, by the way, now I have something. I got you. Oh. <laughs> so, okay. One thing that I think is a concept that is not necessarily widely or well articulated in many places that I've seen, but one place I have seen it well articulated is by shout out to David Hoffman, the his like I can't remember the the article, but he talks about the Peloton. So he's describing the power of open source software and how building in this standard way actually gives you superpowers because you have the ability to work together on a shared standard and everyone benefits from each other's work. So he describes it as this Peloton where all of these bikers, when they're biking, they form this kind of formation that resembles birds when they're flying in the sky so that they're all benefiting from breaking the wind, essentially, so they can all go faster and, and use less energy. So in the Peloton, it is possible to make a modification to the OP stack, swap out a component with this like experimental new component. And you can kind of think of that as you're in the Peloton formation and you go and you bike ahead. And now you're, you're facing the wind because you now have to maintain that component. You've, you're ahead of the game, so you're, you're actually ahead of everyone, but you now have this new burden that's going to wear you out, and that's that maintenance burden. But the interesting thing is that the Peloton will eventually catch up because everyone in, that is like in, using the standard is actually benefiting from each other's work and therefore getting to, you know, moving faster. And so there's this, this, I think that this analogy really exemplifies a balance between or a design pattern around open source software development, where what you really want to do is you want to do two things at once. 
You want to encourage experimentation, encourage customization, because you want people to push the boundaries, just like what Ben was saying, with OP Craft pushing the boundaries, OP Clave pushing the boundaries, all of these different projects, they're creating new and interesting ways to use the OP stack standard. But then at the same time, you want these these innovations to eventually be upstreamed, merged into the standard so that they benefit the entire community. And this is how open source, develop, open source development essentially always just barrels ahead of these you know, one-off solutions. And so I think that that is like a, a really important property where it's almost like, you know, the OP stack is going to be this living thing, this living standard where you can, you can kind of think of it as expanding with all of the different customizations and then pulling them in and like contracting almost like, you know, someone breathing. It's like, oh, now we've got this OP clave. We know how to do this thing. Okay, let's upstream it so that everyone benefits and the entire industry moves forward. And the OP stack is the foundation. Yeah. Bedrock is the foundation. Let's go. I absolutely love that analogy. And that's the first time I've heard that. And I didn't know that definition of the word. I just wikipedia it. And on Wikipedia, it says Peloton. In a road bicycle race, the Peloton, from French, originally meaning platoon, is the main group or pack of riders. Riders in a group save energy by riding close, drafting, or slipstreaming to other riders. So that's exactly what, what Carl just described there. And that, that's such a great analogy. I really like that a lot. And now I know why that stationary bike company is called what it's called. <laughs> Shout out to David. I, yeah, I was going to make a joke that everyone thought Carl was talking about an exercise app. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, so Ben, we've talked a lot about the technical side of the Bedrock upgrade. You spend a lot of time in optimism governance land. I wonder, could we touch on what this upgrade means for optimism governance? And yeah, any thoughts Absolutely. there? Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, you know, oh man, we're going to stretch the boundaries of the analogy and try to make it work. How does that sound? So <laughs> maybe this will get crazy. So, you know, one of the interesting things in the Peloton analogy that I think is like, maybe where it breaks down a little bit or where the OP stack and the power of open source is even cooler than bicycle races is that. You can imagine, you know, in Carl's analogy, someone building out a really cool feature of their bicycle and getting in front ahead and allowing everyone to draft behind, right? The power of open source is that the person that gets that new bicycle feature, I don't know, some more efficient gear that has less friction or whatever it is, right? The more important, the, the more exciting thing is that all the other bikers in an open source context can leverage that and get that gear for themselves and everyone starts going faster, right? So... In that world, one of the key considerations for chains like OP Mainnet and like the countless others that are going to emerge is how do we make decisions about what gears to use, right? There's going to be people doing crazy, incredible, innovative, experimental stuff, right? And there's going to be more core, important environments where it's really important that we make sure that the system is secure and stable and providing users with the guarantees and expectations you know, that, that they've come to know and love. So... The question becomes, how do we make the choices to upgrade the gears? And for OP Mainnet, and more broadly in the future, our answer to that is the Optimism Collective, is the Optimism Governance System, is the OP Token, and the Citizen's House, right? So these are the constituents which should be socially aligned to upgrade the protocols and adopt the new gears, 
right? And in some way, you can think of the bedrock upgrade as like, I mean, it was almost an upgrade of the entire bike, right? It just like across the board improved things. But you can think of it as that upgrade process. So one thing that extremely, extremely excites me in the bedrock upgrade from a social layer is not just the incredible things about the upgrade itself, it's about the decision makers behind the upgrade. And it was truly an honor to be in this position. You know, in early versions of the protocol, like if you go back to the very first release years ago of OP Mainnet when we first launched into production, you know, there were choices and dramatic improvements that, that you know, the optimism that, that, that the company basically enacted. And there was a time and place for that. Like we said, it was so early that that was the right thing to do. But that is not a decentralized solution. And so over a year ago, when we launched Optimism Governance and the Optimism Collective, we knew that it was time to turn over those upgrade controls to the community because no one central party should be able to make those kinds of decisions. So what's super exciting about Bedrock is as an upgrade to OP Mainnet was that it was the first protocol upgrade completed by the collective, which means literally it was voted on and accepted. And I mean, there's so many things in there that excites me. I can talk about how that sets the foundation for voting across multiple chains and all sorts of things like that. I think, you know, maybe the perspective that I'll share here was that it was truly an honor to basically be held accountable to the community, right? So unlike previous upgrades where it was our decision, we had to go and convince the community that the code was ready. And so there were a whole lot of things that we had to do there. We had to ensure that there was solid amount of stability that we could point at and say, look, on testnet, the bedrock upgrade was completed and has been running smoothly for a significant amount of time. We had to say, look, we've run a bounty program and we've proven, you know, to a reasonable extent that this system is secure, right? So I don't know. I, I, I think there's a few aspects that I could talk to, but ultimately the most humbling and exciting thing to me was just like realizing that our money was now where our mouth was in the sense that we actually had to convince the community that this upgrade was good. And so we're glad we got there. And that also made us better because we could not let a button be loose or a, you know, a screw be loose or a button be pressed. Everything had to be in line for this to happen. And that is, I think, really, really, really important for the community. So yeah, yeah there's a little bit about governance. And I'll chime in as well. I think that this is the kind of beginnings of really the magic of Web3, the magic of what we are able to build and bring to the world. Like what we are doing right now is we are contributing to something that is so much bigger than us. We are all essentially working for the protocol. We're working for the the collective and building out software that is going to be used as a public good across the ecosystem. So this this like perspective shift where you go from in essentially feeling I guess a, a level of like undue ownership over the infrastructure that you're building into a mentality where you instead feel as though you are working for something bigger than yourself. I think there are a huge amount of really positive things that come when you are building something bigger than yourself and you're building something for the optimism ecosystem, for the broader Ethereum ecosystem, for even the broader internet ecosystem. It's a really humbling experience. Yeah. And I would just like to maybe now marry these two different things together, this technical side and the more governance side represented by Carl and Ben, respectively, with the technical side continuing down this path of decentralization. 
now unlocking more and more. And I, I see optimism governance taking a more and more important role. And this was the first vote that went through the token house, right, Ben? But it certainly won't be the last. And I see the iterative nature of optimism governance continuing to, well, to iterate and to improve and taking a larger role. Totally. Yeah. I mean, this was not the first vote. The Token House has been running for over a year now. There've been, you know, we're going into the, the, the fifth season. Of the not the first vote, but the first vote on the pro- exactly, on a protocol upgrade. Which is right? a hugely, hugely significant milestone. Absolutely. And one of the fascinating things actually about the Bedrock release is that it sets the foundation for how to do upgrades. Carl alluded to this earlier. A, a lot of the, well, we, we talk, in fact, we had a whole segment on diff minimization. One of the key things about Ethereum upgrading is that there's a good process for that to happen. And one of the really exciting things is that we can mirror a lot of that when we do future protocol upgrades now that we're on an Ethereum equivalent code base. So yeah, I'm super excited for the future, not just because of the fact that this was the first protocol upgrade, but actually Bedrock itself is an amazing foundation to do future protocol upgrades. And because it's so Ethereum aligned, so Ethereum equivalent, that extends to the actual upgrades that we can do. So there are like really exciting Ethereum improvement proposals that are, you know, being worked through the Ethereum governance process right now. I'm super excited to see how the community fares, thinking about applying those to L2 and to OP mainnet, because the fact that we're so similar means that everything that's going on in the EIP land and all the incredible upgrades that are coming to Ethereum can also come to OP mainnet with ease. Oh, and by the way, related to that, which we don't really talk about, is that now we're ERC-4337 compatible because of the upgrade. So many hey, benefits. Carl, what's the ERC-4337? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Can you explain the implications of that, Carl? Wait, you don't wake up every morning reciting all of the most, you know, Only you, bro. The best ERCs and EIPs? No, this is account abstraction using the alternative mempool. So it's, it's, it's essentially just the, a step towards, well, it's account abstraction. And account abstraction, sorry, ah. let me actually give more context. I Again, it's like I'm peeling the layer of the onion because I live and breathe this stuff. Okay, 437 is account abstra- is a way to build out account abstraction without protocol changes. And then a layer deeper is account abstraction is a way to enable much better wallet UX because we have an absolutely, I mean, if you, I mean, everyone knows that using a wallet in Ethereum is just... A nightmare. There's no way to do key recovery. You lose your keys. It's no fun. So we need smart contract wallets. We need more expressibility in the transaction layer. And these are important steps for us to get there. What about EIP 4844 though, Carl? There's something I do know about. Oh, oh yeah. This is a critical EIP, which we have been working on, which I believe is, you know, chugging along and going to be included fingers crossed very soon with in Ethereum that will scale Ethereum L2 by increasing the amount of data availability in the available to rollups and actually generally users of Ethereum. So it is hugely exciting, yet again, trying to build out things that push the industry, push the ecosystem, push honestly, eventually humanity forward with software that makes sense and standards that benefit all. So... Public goods. Yeah, everybody, myself included, is very excited for EIP 4844. But in the interim, this bedrock upgrade just made a significant reduction in fees. And that is here now. It's here today. So that's exciting. I feel like we're kind of winding down here, guys. Is there anything else you want to add before we close it out? I definitely do. We should talk about RetroPGF. 
I knew you were going to say you already had the public goods lined up in your last, Carl. Oh, I knew it. Go for it. You're so right, Carl. How could we, how could we forget retro PGF? Okay. Bring it home for us, Carl. If you can, the challenge for you is to tie all this together with retro PGF and how that works with. All right. I'll try to do, I'll try to tie, tie some stuff together. And then Ben, Ben definitely has to, has to slam dunk it. But anyway, so retro PGF, what does retro PGF even mean? It is retroactive public goods funding. So we've been just talking about how open source software in the Ethereum ecosystem is incredibly important because it allows the whole industry to move forward with improvements on our protocols that we rely on every day. These protocols, who owns them? Well, it's kind of a own the the number of people who own them. We all have a bit of a role in the ownership of these protocols. We are all kind of members of the community. And so there is not a single concentrated owner, especially when we move into identity-based governance with the citizen's house, where it's one person, one vote. Right now, it's a little bit plutocratic, but in the idealized form, it will eventually be these things that kind of benefit all. Now, how does that relate to public goods? Well, building out these protocols, improving these protocols is something that will eventually be enormously beneficial to everyone, including the entire ecosystem. So how do we do that? Well, we found in our early times, we've been building Ethereum for a very long time. We started out early on, the kind of co-founders of Optimism, Jing Ben and myself, we also had worked on a nonprofit called Plasma Group, where we were pushing forward Ethereum open source software. And it was a nonprofit. We were like, okay, let's just make Ethereum great and we'll get funding. We'll figure it out. Well, we realized that actually it's hard to get funding in in the Ethereum ecosystem to build out open source software that actually like pushes standards and, and makes progress, genuine progress. And so what we did is we said, okay, let's take a step back. We need to scale Ethereum because that's what we've been interested in doing for, for, for many years. But we also need to fund public goods. So we formed Optimism PBC, which is now OP Labs PBC, Public Benefit Corporation, which can not only scale Ethereum, but also has a mechanism for sustainably funding public goods within Ethereum, within the Optimism ecosystem. So... What does that actually entail? That means that now building out improvements to optimism, the, you know, contributing to this standard, that is a profitable endeavor. And that, this is, this is the foundation. I think there's, there's something to be, we need to build that Peloton. Open source software really works, but we also need to make sure that the people who, you know, bike out ahead and contribute something that that is a profitable, rewarded thing that the protocol encourages. And so that's what retroactive public goods funding is. And, I, you know, Ben, maybe you add some more context. Let me up your alley, Carl. So, yeah. So everything Carl said, super on point, right? It's absolutely shocking to even just look at the numbers, at the amount of funding that has gone towards things like network security and the application layer versus the amount of funding that has gone to the underlying protocols that we've been talking about today that everybody uses, right? And that's because that software is a public good. And there's a classic market failure, if you want to get all economics-y, that says that there's a market failure for public goods because no one wants, it's like the tragedy of the commons, right? No one wants to create this code 
if there's more money to be made elsewhere, right? So it's extremely, extremely important for public goods funding to align the incentives so that the protocols that empower all of us scale. So that's kind of what Carl was laying out there. So I think the way to tie it home and bring it back to bedrock, right, is that that doesn't happen in a vacuum, right? It's very, very, very critical that we bring up the funding and we make the incentives work. But it's also important that people can actually do the things which are being incentivized. And so I think the way I would tie this back to the bedrock upgrade that we're talking about today is to talk about the modularity. The bedrock upgrade massively, massively improves the accessibility of making public good contributions, like making open source improvements to the OP stack. Because it splits every different little component. Well, first of all, like we said, it reuses so much of the shoulders of giants we're standing on in the Ethereum code base that many, 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 many more people know than any L2 solutions. What it also does is for all of the bits that it does have to change, it breaks them down into small little boxes, modules. This is the modular blockchain meme that you've heard and loved. And the power of combining these incentives with the modularity is that it dramatically increases the amount of contributions not just that are incentivized, but that people can actually make to fulfill the incentives. So we've gone from a world where, sure, we could put you know, an incentive in front of creating public goods, but the number of people that can contribute towards that incentive are very limited, to one where everything is clean and modular and minimal, so that many, many, many more people can contribute. So the way I would tie it all back together and to make sort of like a you know, bold prediction is that the Bedrock upgrade will, as a release of the OP stack, dramatically accelerate the amount of not just public goods funding, but the amount of people that can get that funding and can contribute in the first place because it enables that world. So I don't know, Carl, that, that would be my attempt to tie it together. How'd I do? Fire. That's exactly. Let's go, baby. Perfect. <laughs> that was that was very good, both of you. And I, and I would just wanted to say, to bring it back to this Peloton analogy, we're not sitting back, you know, expecting these these racers or these birds to to put themselves in the front you know face the wind directly without any incentives right why would they so maybe we'll give them a little snack on the way and that'll incentivize them to to get in the front so everybody else can benefit yeah and and you know what i would say even in addition i would say let's give ourselves some snacks we need snacks all around like the reality <laughs> is that i want i want to build the most valuable open source software, the most impactful open source software that pushes the community, the ecosystem forward. That's what I'm interested in. I don't care about thinking about, oh, you know, how are we going to figure out, how are we going to make money? How are we going to, you know, should we do consulting on the side so that we have open source and then we do consulting or do we have like a paid, you know, version? Like that is so much complexity. I want to put my heart and soul into building the best software so that as many people as possible can, that as many people as possible can benefit from. And so in order for me, even like literally, you know, us <laughs> building out the, the beginnings of, of this, this system, you, in order for us to, in the long term be in that, like in that world where you can build for impact, where profit equals or impact equals profit, that requires us reshifting the incentive structures for the Web3 space. And so fundamentally, that's what we're trying to do with, with public goods funding, with retroactive public goods funding. It's just creating a world that, honestly, that we all want to live in. I think I, I want to live in a world where, where impact is profitable. 
I think we all do. And that was great. Thank you. I think we connected a lot of dots here with the bedrock upgrade, the OP stack, the super chain vision, retroactive public goods funding, how they all work together. Thank you guys so much for coming on and explaining these concepts to me and everybody on OP Radio. I knew you guys were going to deliver and you did. So thank you, Ben and Carl, so much. And yeah, anything else you want to say before we sign off? Yeah, last thing I want to say is just to reiterate something I said in the beginning, which is that you know, it's an honor to be up here talking about this incredible, incredible milestone for the collective and for the community. But ultimately, neither Carl nor I could have done it alone. And we are privileged to be a part of a community and an ecosystem, a collection of companies all working together to build incredible software. And the amount of incredible engineering work that went into this release far extends beyond, you know, that little nonprofit that Carl and I and Jing had years and years ago. So Yeah, my last note is just like a moment of gratitude for everyone not on this call who made this happen because it wasn't Carl and me, it was the community. Here, here. Shout out the team. Shout out everybody who contributed across the ecosystem. It's been an enormous, enormous journey and I'm unbelievably grateful to be surrounded with with all y'all and to be a part of this so thank yeah. you yeah shout out the optimism collective i think there's some well-deserved congratulations to go around but as we all know much work yet lies ahead so we're going to keep shipping we're going to keep plugging away but i think we can take a moment of, of appreciation here i agree awesome well with that folks i think we'll close this out thank you once again carl and ben thank you everybody for joining us we'll catch you next week for another episode Have a great rest of your day. Remember to stay optimistic.